Addiction touches so many lives all around the world. And what if you have a family member or a friend suffering from addiction? What do you do? Well, today's guest is Lisa Genosa, and she stopped by the intentional clinician to tell us about her story and her book, which is entitled Incurable Hope, a memoir and survival guide for coping with a loved one's addiction. This book is a loving mother's memoir of her only child's disease of addiction and overcoming the multiple traumas he endured. This book examines how substance use disorder, mental health, and trauma can collide with the legal and medical systems. More importantly, it is a survival guide, a resource guide, and a desperately needed tour guide through the labyrinth of addiction. Lisa Genosa lives with her husband, Dr. Thomas Genosa, in a small rural town in eastern North Carolina, where she is a practicing physician assistant. She is a dedicated wife and mother who grew up as the third child of a liquor and narcotics agent. Her breadth of exposure to healthcare, the legal field, and parenting an addict provided the foundation to reveal the things we least like to talk about, but most need to. She has done countless speaking engagements for the police, parole and correctional officers, paramedics, nurses, and other hospital staff, as well as medical students in an effort to create positive change and provide them with the much needed education on substance use disorder, mental health, and crisis intervention. Lisa has dedicated her time to work with incarcerated men and women in an unprecedented heroin recovery program in North Carolina. Her most valuable contribution for the book came from her son and his expansive understanding of emotional intelligence and the human condition. His battle with addiction, trauma, and mental health forced her to delve into the world she didn't want to accept. Yet it gave her the profound opportunity to learn and to listen and to understand so that she may share the information with the hopes that someone else not just survives, but thrives despite the pain they endure. And right before we get to the interview, if you are a therapist looking for medical billing services that are ethical and excellent and efficient, check out www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's Therapist Billing Services. Billing services made by therapists for therapists. Okay, let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa Genosa. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's a pleasure. Excellent. So I'm excited to dive in to talk about your experience and your book, Incurable Hope, a memoir and survival guide for coping with a loved one's addiction. And I think that a lot, this book is well needed because a lot of people who go through having a family member have addiction, have all this shame about it. They feel awful. They feel responsible. Um, they feel like they are powerless. They just have to go to like Al-Anon groups and be sad the rest of their life. Um, but I, I know that by confessing, I mean, really writing all of your thoughts and feelings, I mean, maybe not all of them, but this book is quite a confessional memoir and has information about mental health and drugs and alcohol and addiction in the systems that uh, you're showing kind of like a bigger story about uh, somebody going through that, not only with their loved one, but themselves as well as the family members who take a lot of the emotional brunt of this as well. So. Absolutely. I think what's what right from the top, it's, it's um, this applies to way more individuals than we could possibly imagine as a practitioner, as a physician assistant, I see so many patients. And once they know my story, 
so many people reveal, you know, their own trials and and experiences with their family members or people they care about or uh, their their marital partner or someone even that they work with. So this applies again, uh, you know, again to so many folks. Um, and it, yeah, I always use the analogy um, with the bowling ball. You know, the the individual with the addiction is the bowling ball, and the you know at the end of the uh, of the the line there are all the pins, and and about twelve people per one individual with addiction are affected on average. And in the United States, it's about half the country. You know, the, the statistic, the statistics are about half the country are affected by someone they care about, love, know with addiction. The actual exact percentage is 47%. So that is a large number of individuals that um, are dealing with this. Yes, I actually did not know that statistic. And uh, that is good to know. I think that a lot of people who are going through it I mean, from my anecdotal evidence of being a therapist, don't know other people that are going through it, right? And so finding support, if you're a family member with an addicted loved one, finding support is incredibly important. And there's actually a lot of support groups that have been starting up and have been going. Of course, Al-Anon is for families, but I actually really like this group called Parents of Addicted Loved Ones, and it's going all over the US. And I actually know the founder of that personally. Um, and he has really devoted his life to that and it's pal.org. And I, if you're a person out there looking for support, it's very important because you're not powerless. Now you can't stop the person from having an addiction, but you certainly have options. And that's some of the stuff I want to talk about today, as well as your own story, um, about the struggles with your son and his, his difficulties, um, with addiction going back to when he was a teenager, actually. Um, absolutely. And from what I've read, statistically, I don't have it in front of me, but a lot of people who have major addiction problems um, in their 20s and later actually started when they were in their teens. And that's what I've read before. Yeah, the statistics are really bad for individuals that start um, really prior to the age of, they they break it down. But, you know, if you start before the age of 16, be, before the age of 14, things like that, your chances are, um, you know, substantially and, and incre- incrementally higher as you get older for um, the risk of addiction. He started around the age of 12 or 13 um, drinking we didn't know about it, but he was drinking at that point. And so really that's when the brain is trying to, um, you know, develop and things are, are supposed to be happening, happening that, um, are not able to happen. The synapses and, and, you know, things aren't able to connect like they should as a young person. So unfortunately you're not getting the, the proper brain development when you start at an early age. So you're really setting up for potential, you know, disaster later, which unfortunately for his case, it did. Yes, yeah, so that totally makes sense. That's because the brain uh, has a process that follows the DNA and the coding. Zero to five, we know, is very important for children um, to have like a nurturing parent or parents, hopefully, around. And then from you know five all the way, now they're saying that the brain is still growing through the age of 25 for most people. So that right. attachment to not only parents, but positive friends and social groups and things like that is just so important for brain development. But alcohol and drugs disrupt that in different ways, depending on the person's genetics, depending on the person's level of drinking or drug use. And that is causing all sorts of problems. And it's always different per person what it affects. 
um, but definitely propensity to be it have a, a very bad addiction in adulthood is is there and as well as usually social issues and um, sometimes organizational uh, troubles and and emotional troubles as well so um, so he started young and then um, I think for a lot of people, I mean, you're a physician assistant, your husband is a doctor from what I've gathered. And there's a lot of, you know, it's like, how could this happen to us? Like we've got, you know, resources, we're smart people trying to do all the right things. Can you kind of talk to a little bit about that? Because I feel like a lot of people are still in that stage. Like how, like, I don't even want to know this is true. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. And that's why I, partly why I put this out there was because, you know, I think the assumption is, you guys should be able to figure this out. If you can't figure out, how am I going to? But the truth of the matter is, you know, we were we were just as blind as anybody else. And I wanted to share that because I, I don't want anybody else to carry that guilt and shame for not being able to recognize things ahead of time, right? Um, you know, it's, it is a very insidious condition, especially very young. And there are a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap in terms of, you know, hormonal changes and peer development and all those things when you're a young teenager. Um, my son had some major sleep challenges, some mood instability, um, some anger issues, some peer, um, um, I don't know if I said peer challenges, but um, all those things are are associated with being, you know, growing up and, and experiencing life to some degree. But I think we looking back now, I think we downplayed some of that and we didn't recognize, you know, or, or think about what else could be going on and we should have. And I will say that I think parents are a little better educated with, um, mental health and substance abuse today, more so than, than when my son was, was young and when he was little. So I think it's a little bit better, but the more we talk about this, the more we have these conversations, that's where I feel like parents will get the tools and the the skills to sort of recognize these these uh, little changes that they might not otherwise tune into. So that's why I'm hoping that that this is that this does that. Yes, I agree with you. I think it's getting a little bit better, but only because people have been coming out of the darkness and sharing their story and writing books and going on podcasts and writing blogs and social media in the positive way that social media can affect sharing those stories. And, yep. and I honestly, I've seen the development since I was a clinician starting in 2007, it was still a large stigma around talking about any of this stuff. And not only has that changed in the last 16 years, but uh, in most, not everywhere, but like it's more accessible. The information is accessible. And there's a bunch of books written by doctors and psychiatrists and therapists and people that have recovered themselves from addiction that are really putting it out there like your book. And I think this is uh, hopefully helping if people don't know where to turn, the information's there. The support groups are there. Yes. If you can't, get to a support group, you can literally take a phone and dial the Zoom number to actually be on an audio call with the support group. I mean, there are, at this point, unless you have zero resources in, and, and, and are, you know, destitute, you can get, you can get help as a family member for someone who's um, going through an addiction. I think the hard part is wishful thinking and denial because 
a lot of us don't want to admit that somebody might have an addiction. And like you said with your son, uh, you know, a lot of kids get bullied and have sleeping problems. Like, how do we know that it's going to turn into a mental health condition, right? Um, especially, you know, part of that is growing up, but then part of it, it, when you said we should have, it's like, well, right. But at the same time, how could you have known that that would have turned into something? And for some kids, it doesn't. And some, for some kids, it does. And so, um, you know, as parents, it, it's a difficult process because you want the best for your kid, but you also don't want to like helicopter over every single thing they do and, you know, watch them like, too much. It's a delicate balance. It absolutely is. Oh my gosh. And you know, when my son was going through the the bullying phase, we he tried to reassure us that, you know, he was okay through that. Today, it would probably be wise to, you know, get some outside assessment of, of what's going on. Um, and we didn't at the time. And I think that's the difference today is that people are more in tune with, okay, maybe this needs, you know, just a little bit more, um, you know, research here on, on everything being okay, truly. Um, because his was pretty, if you read, you know, in the book, it's it mm-hmm. pretty traumatic. I mean, telling oh, yeah. him kill himself and things like that. So, you know, we know what some of the outcomes are with individuals that are getting these messages, unfortunately, in this country. When he was getting those messages, he was like, I'm okay, I'm okay. But he wasn't. He was self-medicating and, you know, coping in a very different way in in private and in secret. And we didn't know that. Right. And that's, and then, well, yeah. So not talking about denial yet, actually talking about the fact of why do people start having a road to addiction? You know, we start talked about starting young. Some people do it to party, to, do it to fit in. And all of a sudden it feels so good that they continue doing it. And some people it's, it's always a variety of reasons, but uh, that people do, it's not just one, but the coping with the nervous system dysregulation. And when you're getting bullied, not only are the, you know, not only do words hurt, we figure that out. Sometimes they hurt worse than getting punched because they stick with you and they come back over and over and over in your mind. And as a young person, you're developing your self-esteem, your sense of identity. Who am I in the world? And when you, people are telling you you're worthless, kill yourself and all of this, especially with online bullying, um, which is happening even more through text messages and different apps, um, that is affecting your child's brain. And I, I think, it's, it's, I don't even know if we have, if our system is fully adjusted to understand how detrimental that is. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the average child experiences study, which I've cited before in this podcast in the nineties talks about all these different ACE scores, which is still very relevant today. And those are correlated with negative health outcomes, mental health outcomes, physical health outcomes, and addiction. However, I've said this before uh, recently to a friend, which was, I feel like the ACE is missing about 10 to 15 more questions, right? And some nuance, like, were you bullied? And how often were you bullied? Um, Did you feel left out? Did you feel ostracized in your social group? Um, you know, back in the middle ages, um, besides the torturing and death that they did, one of the worst punishments they would do to people actually was banishment. You're out of our tribe go away. We'll never see you again. And they knew because of, I don't know, experience that would kill someone normally. Right. You, and so if you don't belong to a group and you're getting told that you're horrible from the group, this is doing mental damage that can cause depression, anxiety, even PTSD, depending on the, on the situation. Um, absolutely. And, you know, and I come back to that, um, cause we were also moving, we had moved, 
um, I think two times in that span of time. And while others do that for some that are, you know, a little more, um, fragile, he had, he, he definitely had some fragile tendencies going into those moves when you're moving and you're trying to fit into another peer group and you're ostracized from that peer group, you know, and then you're told things, you know, you're bullied on top of that. So again, I come back to the fact that what we didn't do at the time was dig a little deeper Mm. because we didn't want a helicopter. You know, he said, I'm fine. Mm. I got this. I'm okay. And we believed him because we didn't want to be that overbearing, you know, force (laughs) with him. You know, he was a young man and as a young man too, there was that other um, layer as a man, you know, developing, developing into a man. There's that other layer of, you know, masculinity. Mm-hmm. So we we tried to respect that, but by respecting that, we totally missed an opportunity to dive in early on. And so if I, I, I keep coming back to it, but if, if parents can be a little more investigative, if things like that are happening than we were to say, you know, even though your child may be saying, I'm fine, I'm good. It's, everything's okay. Still do a little bit of that work. And Again, I think we're more open to doing that now. Yes, I think that's a, a very good takeaway already for people is there's no harm in investigating further yeah. and even preventatively getting your kid into therapy, even maybe 10 or 12 sessions, um, you know, just to see if they say something to the therapist, because maybe they won't tell you because he wanted to act like tough for his mom and dad. I'm tough. I've got this, you know, high achiever type mentality. You describe his personality is very dynamic, very likable, very charismatic. Um, and I think maybe, you know, that was part of his coping skill was to be telling himself he was okay. Right. Yes. And as a man, uh, you know, in, in our culture, masculine masculinity is sometimes equated with shutting down your emotions and acting tough. That's a message we get from movies and rap music and country music and, 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 and different things like that. Um, And so I think that that message gets with teens. And and I think again, schools are doing a better job of that in certain areas, teaching emotional wellness and things like that. And that men and women both have emotions they just express them differently depending on their socialization etc but i think that's a key point for parents is there's no harm in digging deeper and i always i always say like until you're until you're 18 like you definitely don't you definitely want a parent to check you are am i being a helicopter parent yes but also like do i need to investigate my kid more probably because yeah. kids don't tell the truth all the time because they are still figuring out their life and what the truth is right so part of him probably felt i am fine right a part of him was not fine and he maybe didn't know how to express that and show you. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened. And, you know, we have dealt quite a bit with that guilt associated with this. Why weren't we more in tune? Why didn't we do the work um, at the time? But we did at the time what we knew to do at that time. We weren't talking. I mean, he's, he's going to be 30 years old this year. We weren't talking about um, the, the, the amount of counseling and, um, uh, you know, things like cognitive behavioral therapy or, or, you know, anything like we weren't discussing these things years and years ago when he was a young teenager, nearly almost 20 years ago. And so I think this is just something that is, is an opportunity for, um, improved outcomes all the way around. 
Very good. Yes, I agree with that. That um, early intervention is key, and we know that from every type of disease. So, of course, addiction and mental health are forms of disease, and they need to be intervened as soon as possible. And prevention is important. Um, it's so important. I mean, because oftentimes kids don't have the language to tell parents normally. Now, I think because kids are getting exposed to this stuff more often through Mm -hmm. uh, the positive TV shows and the positive media that's out there, there is some of that most, a lot of negative, but some positive that is becoming, um, more mainstream. I've, I've seen in, I don't watch too much television, but I've heard of uh, characters in television shows going, I'm going to therapy. And like, that's new, that's very new. That's like the last six years. I've noticed that, um, which is so cool. Um, I, I'm so glad that that's making it into the, uh, into the culture, into the mainstream culture. Um, you know, it's just like, oh, it's a regular thing. I'm going to work out. I'm going to therapy. I'm going to physical therapy, you know? Uh, yeah. But at the same time, there are still a large portions of the country and cultures that think that that's for weak people. Like we don't need to do that. And that's, oh, that's only if you're really bad. Right. But actually it's can be preventative too. Um, you know, that's why we go for checkups to the doctor to make sure that we're healthy. We might not know. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that being said, there is, I'm going to, quote your book but since i'm since this seems to be rolling off i'm just going to go to some more topics i have questions about which is let's just say now okay then you noticed something was wrong but there was a part of you in the book you talk about that didn't want to see how bad things were can you talk a little bit about that for people oh yeah i mean there was years of denial and this is just um teenage antics and He's, he's going to, you know, he's going to grow out of this. It's, this is going to get better. Um, it really wasn't until many years later when we're talking about, you know, legal issues and medical issues. And those, those didn't start happening right away, obviously. So you can't deny, you know, DUIs and um, hospitalization for, you know, gastric bleeds and pancreatitis and, and incarceration. You can't deny those things. However, before those things started happening, there is a lot of denial. And that's why we ended up getting to those other, those other phases. Um, just because I just didn't want to accept it. I was too, you know, you just have these expectations of life and they are very simple. Really. We had a very simple life. Um, and I just could not see my life or his life or our family's life in any other light than it to just be, you know, sort of status quo, sort of societal status quo. You grow up, you go to school, you go to college, you get a job, you get a family, you have kids, so on and so forth. I had never allowed myself to imagine that it would be another way. But I will say when that day came, there was a day and there were multiple days really, but there was that time when you, when I got to acceptance, the acceptance of not that he's an alcoholic or a drug addict, not that he's, but the acceptance that this is what our family is dealing with. Now, this is what our family looks like. This is what we are facing. This is how it is going forward. It was at that moment that everything changed that And, and they, you know, that's a little bit cliche because they say you can't get to, you can't, um, 
take care of your, treat your, you know, addiction until you accept that you're addicted. So I was the same thing. It was the same way for the family. And I do talk to my patients about that as well, you know, because a lot of them can't accept it. They don't want to believe that their family member is that bad off or, you know, um, and I try to, you know, coach them and guide them and give them the book (laughs) and some advice along the way. And, you know, encourage that acceptance earlier on, because I think that the, the challenge was that I spent so much time in denial that I didn't take care of what was in front of me for too long. And I perpetuated the negative outcomes that we have dealt with. And along with, as I talk about in the book, the, you know, there was a lot of law enforcement and medical failures um, along the way that also helped perpetuate this, you know, his mental health, his addiction issues, and, and then of course the traumas. So it's, it is just so important to get to that point of acceptance earlier in the, the, your, your ordeal to kind of be able to, you know, to head, take care of it head on, because if otherwise you're going to, you're going to avoid, 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 and just going to keep going and going and going and getting worse and worse and worse. And we know what happens then. Yes, absolutely. That. Thank you for saying that. I definitely am going to touch on the on the criminal justice system in the hospitals later on with that. But with the with what you're talking about with denial, it's like so hard to accept that this is how bad things are. It's like how could this? It's like shock. How could this possibly be us? Right. I I I wanted a. I wanted a family that's like a sitcom. We have some problems, but by the end of the show, we all make up and hug and go to bed. I did not want a soap opera. That's not what I signed up for here. I've actually worked my whole life not to have a soap opera ongoing. And here we are. And risk of death. Oh, I mean, oh, that's scary for anybody to have a family member, let alone your own child. You know. And so what I want to say to parents is you can get help too. And as a family member, not only do you need a support group, you may need a therapist because it is a tr- uh, can, it's at least an adverse experience, if not a traumatizing experience to have your child get close to death. And you have no control because uh, when, when things got really bad, he was over 18. Uh, from what I remember, it's like when things got really bad, he was a bit older. Yes. Yeah. And you have no control. You don't. You can only try to love them or whatever, but you can also do things that hurt, which are, we feel our gut instinct tells us help, help, got to help, got to help, got to pay for things, got to get them uh, fixed up. And then this time they'll be okay. Right. And, and, and not, and I know you talk about that in the book a little bit, but I call those like, we get fixated in our helping pattern because if we, this is my theory, if I was in that situation Maybe that's what would help me, getting me a new car, getting me fixed up, getting me all cleaned up, start me over, new town, let's do it, you know? But actually, it's not addressing the main problem because if I'm in denial and I'm thinking they'll just get better naturally kind of like I would, that's not true. When you have an addiction, it is wired in the brain and the body. And it is wired as hard as you want to have willpower and white knuckle it as they call it, grab the seat, don't grab the bottle, don't, you know, smoke the weed. It has become part of the body and it's almost impossible to explain unless you've been through it or maybe as a person that you've maybe in a mild version, you've been addicted to like potato chips or something like that and had to like get it out of your house because if you know if you eat one, you can't stop. 
right? Right. But that's a very mild version of something that completely alters your entire consciousness, right? And it alters your entire personality. And it can cause your mental health to get so much worse so that you actually are more likely to commit suicide. I don't know the statistics on this, but I've read somewhere that almost every suicide in the U.S. is not done sober. It's upwards of 70%, something like that. Is that the person might've just had a few beers, but it's, they are doing it on something because to get that kind of courage up. So, um, can you talk a little bit about unhelpful helping patterns that as a family we might, or you, or, or, or what you see with your patients kind of fall into that actually perpetuates the addiction? Yeah. The the unhelpful things that we did, my gosh, I mean, we paid for the, the very first thing that we did that I think was wrong was with his, he was young and he had his first DUI and we stepped in and said, Oh, we got to get a lawyer. We got to help you with this. You know, lawyers are going to be thousands of dollars and, and, but, and you can't afford that. So we'll take care of that. We're going to get that because, because if you're in a state of denial too, you, you recognize that um, a DUI or anything on a, on your license is going to affect you the rest of your life pretty much. And so we were like, well, we, if we get a lawyer and get this, you know, managed a little bit better and, um, that it'll just kind of go away and you won't have to deal with this, but that in effect (laughs) means that you're not dealing with it and they're not dealing with it. And it isn't yours to really deal with exactly. He was still, he's old enough to drive. So he had sort of the, the ability to figure that out. So the very first thing was we shouldn't have stepped in with paying for a lawyer. He should have been the one to figure out how am I going to manage this situation? And then from there, I mean, it got so bad, you know, we were, there wasn't anything we weren't paying for. I mean, we were, and, mm-hmm. and it was, I was just being mama bear, you know, I'm, I've got to keep my kid alive. I, he, he's going to be homeless. He's going to be hungry. And you can't tell a parent that their child is hungry or homeless because it just that instinctual thing is going to take over and you're going to find any way under the sun to, to help that situation. So that doesn't happen, but in effect, right, you're, you're giving them everything so that they can keep doing what they're doing. And sometimes they have to, I, as, as hard as this is to imagine or to say, sometimes they have to be homeless for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. And that's unimaginable. It still is to me, you know, but it, it's happened. My son has been homeless for, for a short, you know, periods of time. And it wasn't until after I was able to accept what was going on that I could let that happen. I could actually let that happen because when that happened, he would get to that place of his own, you know, reckoning. Okay. I got to take care of this. So it's, it's really just, we flew across the country many, many times. We uh, gave him, you know, helped repair vehicles. We got the vehicles out of towing. We, um, you know, paid for his groceries, his rent, his, um, you know, his doctors, doctor bills, um, therapists, you know, IOP. We tried, he did go to rehab um, nine times. And during those times, we, there were t- some that, you know, didn't take insurance. So we would pay out of pocket large amounts for him to do those rehab, you know, stays. Um, so we did it all. We kind of just threw everything at, at the wall to see what would stick. And unfortunately, um, it just wasn't working. 
until again. So we said, Hey, wait a minute, what are we doing? What are we doing here? (laughs) Right. We have to try to help them face their own addiction and it's a dangerous game because it's not a game because you're right. Like when do you help versus when do you not help one time you don't help, they could die. I mean, that's the reality is they could die. Um, so for parents, I, I have a, a little video course I made on Udemy called for parents of young adults. And it's like only like $12 or something. I don't know. I just, it's like a three hour video course I made for parents who are trying to face these decisions, alcohol or not, you know? Um, what I say in there is one of the things is trying to let natural consequences happen at a low dose so that they don't, the stakes don't become higher and higher and higher in their life. So for instance, that's one of the hardest things to tell parents. I actually worked with some parents and their kid got arrested for being high and driving into somebody. And they, at this was the second time. And I said, you can do what you want. And I can't give you advice. I'm a therapist, but let me ask you what happens if you pay for this next lawyer? What happened the first time? Well, he didn't learn. Okay. So what happens? So they didn't pay for a lawyer and he got court appointed and he got six months something like that. And he came out a new person (laughs) and now he still has his struggles. It's not that easy. Right. But Mm -hmm. he started taking accountability because he was so surprised that the parents didn't bail. And they said, I can't do it this time. You've got to learn. And that took everything in them to do that. They were depressed, guilty, stressed out, very upset because and I was like, listen, like it's your choice. You want to bail him out any day. You can get a good lawyer and he will get out for sure because it was such a minor incident. You know, he had, you know, it was, a, I can't go into it too much, but we want natural consequences. And the hard part is when you're with drugs and alcohol, the, the consequences could be deadly. And so how do you step in? And, and, and I think there's books on this and you talk about this in your book, but emotional support and treatment are the two things I think parents should give as much as they can. As much as you can pay for treatment, as much as you can give emotional support, the better. Sometimes the treatment may have to be (laughs) like the shelter that gives free drug and alcohol treatment or something like that, but help them with that. The hard part is when we start paying for things, if they have a real addiction, if they have a very strong addiction, and this isn't just a a, a short-term uh, problem because of uh, a relationship or or something they're going through. Anything we give them can be used to perpetuate the addiction. And yeah. I've seen parents give their kids like, well, I just gave them a McDonald's gift card and they sold it for meth. Like mm-hmm. they sold it for 25 bucks for meth. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't want them to be hungry. I know neither do I, but if they are hungry, eventually they're hopefully their survival instincts will kick in. Hopefully. It's- it's that word, hopefully. Yeah. But, and it, it was also when I said, and this sounds weird. I've said this to other folks before, but it was when I realized that, um, I could lose my son when I accepted that I could, my son could die. And it's even hard to, you know, say that out loud, but when you get to that understanding, you can free yourself. You let go when you know that you are nobody special meaning that you can lose your child just like anybody else can. And so many people do, and we get in, and, you know, there is that, there is that real probability or probability, excuse me. There's that real possibility 
and you have to accept that. And then that gives you, again, that gives you a little bit of, I've, I've done a lot of, of, you know, reading to kind of get to that point, to, to that understanding. Um, I think one of the, the best books I read about that, that really, really helped me through that was, um, I'm going to forget the name now, um, Solve for Happy. Mm. Solve for Happy made me realize that losing my son was a, was a possibility and that it wasn't a, it was a point of acceptance that enabled me to help him and, and help others going forward and stop this cycle of, you know, denial and, and perpetuating the, the, the disease of addiction, you know? So it was, it was, it's important. It sounds weird, right? That's not something we should ever have to accept or understand, but it it did make a difference. I, I agree. Um, I do think our culture is <laughs> different than a lot of other cultures around the world. If you've ever traveled <laughs> and we're sort of a newer culture. I mean, we've only been at this for a couple hundred years and we, in some ways are immature. I think as a culture in the mainstream, we don't really talk about death very often. We're kind of a death denial and we want them like, okay, funeral by, okay. Like we don't like other cultures sit with the dead body. They think about these things. They have, you know, more traditional cultures, I would say. And it's a part of life. Death is a part of life. Right. And, and, and having that in mind, philosophically i think can sometimes help people make decisions but like you said like facing that stark reality brought you to a different place where you were able to change the way you responded to him and yeah. the way what decisions how you were going to help and what how much and what and how that was going to look um and so that being said i want to read I, I know this is silly but the way you dedicated this book was amazing um I, I, that I'm silly that I'm only reading the, I'm only going to quote your dedication right now, but this book is dedicated to those who like the Lotus flower, overcome the darkness and suffering, persevere through unimaginable, unimaginable pain and rise with new hope every day. This book is dedicated to my husband, Alex and my son, Tyler, and to all the families who have lost their loved ones to this cruel enemy. And you say so much in just that little page. I was just like, Whoa, I, I earmarked that page. Because the, all all over the U.S., people are dying of overdoses and accidental alcohol deaths and fentanyl all the time. So people's kids are dying. And we've got, a, I think, a pretty big crisis, even though we have more help than ever in some ways, more information than ever, at least. Um, maybe not more hospitals or people that know how to help this stuff than ever. I'm not sure about that. But darkness and suffering and have to have hope. And that is something that's hard to do, especially when your son or loved one is not okay. They're not okay. They're in a bad way. They might be in a relapse and you have to be patient. Yes. So what can you say? What, what any comments you want to say about that? Well, um, I guess the reason that this all came to be was because I was trying to help others recognize that if they were able to 
I don't know how to say, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but um, turn that all that pain that they're experiencing from their family, their, their loved one um, suffering into some sort of purpose, some sort of meaning, some value, then it all will not only help themselves and help their loved one, but help many, many others. And we can all collectively, which is my desire, collectively lift one another. We can't, you know, we're, we're so, when you have a loved one with addiction, whether it's your spouse or your child or your parent, you are all consumed with their life and their survival. But if you can step away, step, you know, back from that and try and focus on not just them, but yourself and others, I think the outcome for everyone is dramatically improved. And what I mean by that is, um, when my son had long bouts of sobriety, I made the decision that I have to go back in and, and, um, help those with crisis intervention training because of what happened to my son with, um, de-escalation tactics with, so I did talks with law enforcement and medical. And, um, I went into work with a heroin addiction program in the, um, with incarcerated individuals because I said, if I can help them, guess what that does? That helps me. It helps potentially my son because I learned so much more and it helps globally. So it's this whole effort. And so again, I try to encourage others to find hope by helping more than just what's right in front of your eyes and, and build from that and doing it earlier on. That's the whole message is don't wait 10 or 15 or 20 years like I did, get started early and find ways that you can make a difference for, you know, as many people as possible. And you'll see that, that how that benefit helps you and helps your loved one. You'll see how that blossoms in that way. Um, but it's incredibly hard to do, right? When you're consumed with what's going on in front of you, it's hard to imagine how can I go help somebody else when, you know, I can't even keep what's under my own roof straight. It's just a, a, one of those things when you feel like you are able do it because it will evolve your situation into a, a better one. It really will. That's all I can say is it will. Yes. Uh, I agree with you. Um, somebody I know who now runs the parents of addiction, uh, addicted loved ones group. He's the president now. Um, both of his kids recovered from heavy heavy drug use. And he was a police chief uh, at the time. <laughs> and so you're thinking, oh, a police officer who's the chief, he must know how to keep his kids uh, under control and making sure they're not off there doing meth and heroin. Uh, no, not true. Uh, it happens everywhere and anywhere. And obviously we know that people who are in poverty have a higher propensity of being um, thrown into addiction due to numerous factors, right? But it doesn't, it, but addiction that, that, that may be true statistically, but addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, it, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in the suburbs. It's happening in the cities. It's happening in the countryside. It's happening everywhere. So that being said, I do think, and you talk about this in your chapter, the criminalization of mental health, in which I want to dive into here. Yeah. I think that the systems most mental health hospitals, I'm going to throw them under the bus right now. Most mental health hospitals right there. Most hospitals 
and a lot of police departments are about 40 to 50 years behind in their understanding of mental health. It's shocking to me. Now, I mean, even just 20 years ago, outpatient counseling was years behind on mental health treatment. And because of all the new research with the adverse child experiences and the etiology of mental illnesses, and of course the cross-pollination with different, um, you know, environmental factors, genetic factors, um, even what you eat can, can contribute to these things. Um, you know, f- uh, family of origin, um, exposure to different things, all these different factors, personality, that can lead to different. We now know that there's a there's a giant overlap of so many factors that can lead to mental health issues. And if you have mental health issues, as you say in your book or your chapter, a well worn path, you talk about that you you're more likely to have a uh, if you have a mood disorder, you're more likely to eventually develop an addiction. Um, yes. So the hard part is I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm not, I'm just saying I think as a country we have to invest a lot of money that we're not investing right now into improving practices at mental health hospitals, improving triage at hospitals, and improving triage amongst the police departments. Now, I know a few cities have been doing this thing where they send social workers out on calls that they believe are more mental health related. That's literally within the last three years that's occurred from what I understand. I I mean, if you're a police officer, how are you supposed to do traffic stops, drug busts, come to a murder scene, and then help somebody who's mentally ill? I mean, it can all look like a threat to you, right? And so I don't know why we don't have some some other department to handle that. We have a crisis line. That's cool now. That's good. But that's not enough. Um, and I think police officers aren't educated on that. And also, should they have to be? I mean, at the, <laughs> you know, there should be a whole division of the police that do only mental health, right? Because that's what we're in. We're in a mental health crisis and we're in a drug crisis. So. Right. What are your thoughts on your experiences? I mean, I read <laughs> I read the experience, which I'm not trying to spoil the book. People need to read this book, but it was gruesome what happened to him in jail. Um yeah. yeah. I know. Josh, you you gave me so many things to to talk about there. Oh, anything you want, go for it. Um, well, no, this is what I've been doing for the last couple of years because oh, I'm good. passionate about working with law enforcement and making these outcomes better for for both for them and for for the individuals that they're serving, you know, um, my mom was a liquor and narcotics agent as well. So I, I have law enforcement in my family. It's another reason from, for the purposes of the book, you know, I have this trifecta of law enforcement back, my mom, you know, just growing up in, in a law enforcement home and that they're called liquor and narcotics agents in the state that I grew up. And then, um, I'm in medicine and then my son has, you know, substance use disorder. So I've kind of, really started developing it, developing it from, you know, all those angles. So that's what helped me go in and say, okay, what happened to my son was not right. Nothing about that evening should have happened. Um, putting it very, very simplistically, he was suicidal in the, in the worst imaginable way. And ultimately he was um, put into solitary confinement in a suicidal state. And there's a lot of other information in there that's in the book, but um, that should never have happened. And I remember the chief of police telling me that this is, well, this is where we have to house him. That was his exact words. This is where we have to house these people, these people. And, um, and so as a result of that, that is when I started saying, okay, there's something wrong. There's a systemic problem within the police department 
about managing these situations. So that is why I went in and started doing mental health crisis intervention training for, you know, they, they started to have, they started to implement these crisis intervention um mandatory training sessions for police officers. So that is one thing that they had been doing. The other thing was also what you're talking about that's been really sweeping across the country called LEAD, Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. And it is where they are allowing, you know, getting other um, um, treatment options or, or things in place so that we don't go from addiction or mental health to jail because we we know that punishment does not equate to positive outcomes punishment is going to worsen the situation in the vast majority of cases um in addition i just went to a pre-arrest diversion um conference here in my state of north carolina and they are really trying to implement very systematically and methodically how to implement um true um, uh, plans, putting plans in place, how to pay for them, how to, um, uh, initiate them, how to educate people about them to, instead of you pick up a person with mental health or substance use disorder disorder, and you can get them into the right resources at the right time in the right manner, as opposed to putting them in jail and, and letting them kind of sit there and, and rot in, in many, many cases. Right. So, this is happening. It is happening. And it's all, again, because what we were saying before, we're all having these conversations. We're all talking. People are getting together. They care. They're they're invested in it. They don't want to see these, these things happening to individuals anymore. And and you know, it's 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 working a little bit. We're getting there. I say we're probably another decade or two away from really beneficial changes, but things are changing. And I also believe in, in the hospitals, if there was a better, um, detox protocol, um, a better, um, plan of action in terms of like, we do, we have standard of care when we're treating patients, right? So what is that standard of care for an individual that comes in with substance use disorder? Because I'll tell you right now, most individuals go into the emergency department, they get hydrated and they get thrown back on the street. And there is nothing about that that is going to have a good outcome. Nothing. Matter of fact, sometimes they're they're back in the hospital that same day, the next day, the same day, that same week, um, whether it's a heroin overdose or, you know, an alcohol overdose, whatever it is. And so these are not effective measures. You can't hydrate somebody, put them back out there because they're going to they're going to end up back in there. So there has to be a better plan. And we are recognizing the mental health crisis the urgency of this, the National Institute of Health is recognizing it, the state levels help recognizing it. And there just happens to be a good bit of money in my state right now coming in from, from federal money from the um the the recent um opioid oh the uh, opioid crisis bill. I can't remember what it's called. Crisis. Yeah. But there were, it was in one of the it was one of the health bills. There was some money for opioid crisis, yeah. Correct. We are getting $1.8 billion infused into the state of North Carolina, and they oh. are strictly putting that towards mental health and substance use disorder only. So even where I'm at, I'm, I'm located in a, in a very rural community. So it makes it even harder for individuals over in my area to get any kind of help. It's terrible, but they're actually building a about, I think a hundred bed, 150 bed facility finally, um, 
you know, in, in this small area, it's not small, it's actually a huge geographic, you know, uh, area, but it, it, it's, everybody's so widespread. They just don't Mm -hmm. have access to, to care. And so we don't have detox facilities readily available. We don't have substance. You don't have uh, recovery facilities really here. And I'm talking, you know, hundreds of miles of, of rural communities. So it's hundreds of thousands of people, but widespread, right? So this is, these are the things that are going to benefit from um, the injection of these changes, I think. But again, we're a decade out. Yeah. Yeah. We would have, (laughs) there's a lot of systems that need to overlap with mental health and medicine and in a way that is bringing in the newer science of addiction and the newer science of why people use drugs and alcohol and getting rid of that mentality that I think was even perpetuated in movies and TVs that like people on drugs are crazy criminals, you know, like these bad guy versus good guy type archetype is no, this is a suffering person. And how do we safely stop them from harming themselves and others while also offering legitimate treatment instead of punishment? Um, Somebody I, I was in a a training once and somebody said if punishment worked there wouldn't be any addicts or alcoholics in the world because that's usually the first thing people do is try to punish them either emotionally or physically or the system the criminal justice system is is handling addiction which is not what they're trained for so yeah correct correct um but i will say that there's there's still some of those attitudes that are very strong i i still see it i worked in the emergency room for a short time there's still some really, really poor attitudes. These people are trash. These people, we need to get them out of mm-hmm. here. I'm not going to deal. My son, the, he dealt with somebody who was a mental health deputy. So he had been, supposedly, he got a, a, an extra 20 hours of training to be a mental health deputy. So you get paid more. He was not a nice individual who cared very much about the circumstances he didn't de-escalate the situation, which, so I don't know if he had any additional de-escalation training. I don't know if he had any mental health training. It's important to understand mental health. There's, you know, addiction is not in a vacuum. It is, there is underlying issues all the time. So it's really important to understand sort of the the, the whole picture. But I, I just think we have failed individuals miserably. And my son happened to be one of those those individuals that was horrifically failed. Yes, the systems, yeah, we could keep going on the systems. I think the hard part is uh, if you're a person who feels powerless right now, you can get involved. Um, you know, if it's your relative, you know, obviously there's a lot to to get involved in there. But if it's just you're a concerned citizen, um, it's important that um, when we look at funding for public health, that and that includes public safety, that mm-hmm. new paradigms are incorporated. I think leads, like you talked about with the the people going on, you know, some of these calls is just the tip of the iceberg of what we need. It is. The funding for ad addiction, I think, uh, needs to be upgraded with who knows what, I'm not a politician, but more tax on drugs and alcohol. Um, Please, uh, yes. <laughs> more taxes on opiates, um, which are you know sometimes necessary but overprescribed um and uh that needs to be paying for especially 
a lot of people who can't afford treatment. Like you were able to use your private insurance and your your money to pay for your son's treatment, but how many people yes. haven't the only option they have is a Medicaid hospital, which is underfunded, falling apart, and has no mental health wing, right? How many that's that's most of America, unless you live near a big city where you might get lucky to get your Medicaid accepted in a, a more advanced hospital, maybe depending on the city and depending on the state, right? So uh, I think uh, this is a societal issue. Like people say addiction's a family issue. That's true, but it's also because there's emotional components and there's dynamics, but it's a societal issue um, and it's a personal issue. It's It's all of the above and they all intersect and I think as a person who's a concerned citizen, you can you can advocate in your community for more funding for mental health that actually does things, right? Into the schools, right? Prevention. Uh, into the police departments. Into, um, you know, are there hospitals and, and facilities that accept um, people for addiction, you know, addiction treatment? And um, how do we treat people with addiction? Are, are we just labeling them as felonal, uh, felonious criminals? I mean, obviously, drug dealers obviously have a different uh, penalty when they get caught. But why are you know why are people who are using heroin get thrown in jail and, and get charged? You know, I mean, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, you can you can make change by speaking up, but to speak up, you got to get educated. I mean, that's why you wrote this book. I'm assuming is to get people educated. Absolutely. But I want to, I want to emphasize too, cause I always want to say this, this is, this is not across the board with all police. Like they're, oh, they're no. all doing it. Matter of fact, one of the biggest endorsements I have on the back of my book is from a chief of police in Ohio who um, really advocates for individuals on the street that are, you know, going through this as well. And he, he wants very much just like all of us want that change to occur. And he's making major things happen for, for that to happen. So I recognize, and I have worked with some incredible individuals in law enforcement that just really want, and in medicine that care so much for individuals with these, um, you know, issues and, and want to make a difference. So I'm, that's what, that's what I want to encourage is more of those, those people to sort of shun and, and, you know, the other people that are not so kind and not so helpful and not so empathetic and have really become apathetic in their professions to have some self-examination about that. And when I did my talks, that is something that I worked on. I had, I say this all the time, I had the hardcore narcotics agents come up up to me after my talk and tears in their eyes and saying, you know, I I really need to do some serious self-examination. I'm not, I'm not doing things as well as I used to not treating people like I should. And that that's all I wanted. That's what I was there for. And, you know, and to be fair, it's a hard job. And so I think the hard part is how do we support, how do we make not only changes with the education, but how do we actually bring mental health help into hospitals and public safety so that they get support and they're not burned out? And that is tough. Absolutely. My gosh, that's um, when I went in, I talk about compassion fatigue and professional burnout um, and then their own mental health. Because uh, you know, there's high suicide rates for officers and oh, things yeah. like that. I talk about all that with them and say how important it is for them to have their own their own check. There's some there's a great quote, and I don't have it right in front of me, so I'll I'll probably completely screw it up, but it's ultimately saying that, you know, it's impossible to be confronted with, you know, all the trauma and and the 
um, daily um, stressors and and things that officers and medical personnel see, like like paramedics, what they see every day. It's impossible to not be affected by that. And if you think you can, it's like walking through water and expecting not to get wet. <laughs> it is so true. Like you, you have to be able to recognize that taking the on the burden of taking care of people and society and, and these, you know, everyday traumas and everyday, um, deaths and, you know, motor vehicle accidents and gunshot wounds and things like that. We're seeing some of the, you know, those individuals are seeing the worst of the worst. They're going to be affected by that. So how do they manage that? How do we deal with that? I agree. I think these are conversations we have to have as a society because the status quo is not working. Um, we, we've evolved, we are now, I don't know if it ever was working, but culturally (laughs) we are, we are seeing the effects. And this is like, so I said, it's cultural because like it starts with us to get the awareness up, but then how do we support economically those who are doing that and getting them the training, getting them the support. And then that will make a difference. Because people who don't have a mom and a dad like he had, like your son has, they don't have those parents to help them and go through all this with them, or they don't have a sibling. They are dependent on the system. They're dependent on the criminal justice system, and they're dependent on the hospital system. To and that's not enough, right? And so then, that, no, it's, it's a tough, enough. it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. So, um, I like that your book has not only your personal discussion but a lot of nuance because this is a nuanced thing there is not a fix-all right there's a lot of things you talk about in the book in the in the ending about you know different uh medical treatments non-medical treatments counseling sober living treatment facilities and you kind of explain these to people in a way that's very uh relatable um i also like that you uh, talked about all these really, oh, you have pal group. <laughs> I didn't see that. You do have the pal group listed in here as one of the groups that you can go to group therapy, um, state specific, um, books, um, the, important to get information when you're in these situations. Uh, the reason I did that was because, um, the reason I put all that in there was because even again, as a medical professional, I didn't really understand all the the language it's, it's decoding that language of addiction understanding what, um, like if you're, if you're not working in this environment, if you're not, if you haven't been exposed to addiction or, or mental health or medicine, and you are coming to this completely blind, it's going to, it's like going to a different country and trying to learn that language. And so I was trying to put it the way I would talk to my patients for the most part, not making it too technical, but also keeping it, you know, relevant. And, um, you know, there's things like, I put in there transcranial magnetic stimulation. How would people know about that if, you know, they're not, you know, if they're not, you know, being told about it, right. If they're not in mm-hmm. investigating it and how do they even know if it's available? How do they know what it is? What does that even mean? Um, I talk about things like I say, pink cloud, you know, somebody on the outside might not understand what that is. I never knew what that was till over 10 years of, going through this with my son. So I just try to, um, give a lot of vocabulary and, uh, explanation of things so that it's a little easier to navigate this, this system. So you're not just 
you know, kind of going through sludge for years and years and trying to figure it out with, you know, yes, there are a ton of resources, but how do you, how do you um, go through, how do you, I don't know, figure those resources out where, which direction to go and how do you decode what they're even talking about in, in some cases? So that's, that's where I was coming from. I think that's great. And the, the book is short and, and, and readable. Uh, so I think that, you know, anybody can read this, this book. And I think knowledge is power. I believe knowledge is power. And I think that is one of the hardest things for people to, you know, undertake is like, wow, I have to learn about this stuff. And that, that can be an issue as well. So, um, your son is, you know, still in your life. He's, you and him have a different relationship now. So like you said, it's not like a fairy tale because when you're dealing with addiction, you know, there's always a chance of relapses. I, I always say relapse is part of recovery, right? It's we learn again why we're not trying to use, um, but it's yeah. it's a it's a rough road. So anything you wanted to say about that, how, how things are with you now that you've written the book and things like that? Yeah. My son is so supportive of this. I was so scared that I asked him every step of the way about his, you know, involvement. And, um, he 100% was like, I want this to be out there to help others. Um, I think it's one of the most courageous things he's ever done. Um, we still have are very, very close and talk every, pretty much every single day. Um, he doesn't live in the same state I do. And, and, and that's awful. I wish he did, but, um, we're very close and, you know, he still struggles and this is not going to be, this is not a fairy tale. This isn't something that it's, you know, a perfect ending no matter what, but he is working on himself and that's all any of us can do. So I'm, I'm just grateful for that and grateful for this opportunity to, to help others in the process. It's hard. Some days I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to help anybody else. I, I just want to stay under my covers and, you know, avoid, but it's important to do it. And it ultimately, I, it helps me survive. It helps me, my son survive. It helps us all get through this, you know? So it's, it's a part of, part of the process. Good. I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, kind of in conclusion, I mean, it is a process um, for anyone who's, like you said, most people in the U.S. are affected, at least 47% are affected by somebody who's got an addiction. It's a process. Yeah. If you dive in, though, it's going to be much better than if you don't take the risk to dive in and learn the information. So does yeah. it make things easy? It, it can make things easier. It doesn't mean your life will get easier, but you will be better equipped to deal with whatever life is giving you. So absolutely can't agree with you more. That's, that's, that's why we did it. And uh, I'm going to put this in the show notes um, just for people that don't like to click in the show notes. Where can they buy your book, Incurable Hope by Lisa Genosa? Where can they buy this? Anywhere books are sold. Anywhere. Uh, any bookstore. Any, you know, of course, on Amazon, any Barnes & Noble, any bookstore, any even private. If you have a, a, an indie bookstore, independent, they can order it uh, through Ingram Spark. I also have it on Audible and um, ebook, of course. And so it's it's there. And you can also click on it from my website. Um, I don't know if that'll be on your uh, listing, but it's just my name, lisagenosa.com with two N's. It'll be in there for sure. So we'll definitely have that available for everyone. And I really want to thank you for your time and, uh, and uh, telling your story. Very brave. Thank you so much for having me. And I just hope others will, will 
uh, take something from this and and help them out as well. And I, I just appreciate all the time. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Or take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. As most of you know, I am passionate about preventing future violence in the United States. My colleagues and I have started a nonprofit called the National Violence Prevention Hotline, a 501c3 organization. We are endeavoring to gain funding and collaborators so that we can start a 24-7 hotline and chat line to reach potential perpetrators before they act violently. It is a bold effort to save lives and curb violence by working to connect with potential offenders while they are in the planning stages of violence, help to de-escalate them and provide resources so that they can get appropriate professional help. The National Violence Prevention Hotline is looking to open up a conversation about violence in society, the causes, and the solutions. You can learn more by visiting our website, www.violencepreventionhotline.org. Join us online by signing our petition on the website, sharing the website with your network of people, Donating to the cause if you like, and you can now even write your congressperson from our website with a simple form. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you are a therapist looking for ethical and excellent medical billing services, check out therapistbillingservicesllc.com. That's www.therapistbillingservicesllc.com. Billing services created by therapists for therapists. If you're looking for an EMDR International Association consultant, I am a consultant and I can provide you the 20 hours you need to become EMDRIA certified. I have groups online and in person and I do individual consultation. Just send me a message at the website and I'll get back to you. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out the great training opportunities with EMDR Training Solutions. I've worked with them before and they are phenomenal, so register today. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment at a local counseling center in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest, and while these are based on the literature they have read and the experience in their fields, this should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you're in a crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. You can also text 741741 and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? 
You can order from the comfort of your own home online while supporting local brick and mortar businesses near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your national or local therapy organizations such as the American Counseling Association or the American Mental Health Counselors Association, please get involved. At least pay the dues. It will help the lobbyists in our field keep us from becoming gig workers. And of course, there's the bonus of increasing mental health education around the United States and helping people understand what counseling is and promoting best practices within our profession. Until next time, I wish you all a safe and peaceful week.